Is classical liberalism important for sociology? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Lotta Stern. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Lotta Stern. Lada is the Professor of Sociology in the Department of Sociology at Stockholm University. She was also the Deputy Head of the Department previously. Her research deals mostly with labour market issues and her research activities are part of the Ratio Institute's Labour Market Program. Her specific focuses, such as elites in the labour market, resulted in her co-authoring a book called Elites in Sweden. She's also interested in what the classical liberal tradition can bring to sociology and vice versa. That is what will form the basis of most of our discussion today. Lada, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's great to have you on. So we frame each of our episodes around a question and go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, is classical liberalism important for sociology? So I'd like to start with sort of the, the, the basics, which is, you know, you, you say that sociology can use a lot more classical liberalism. That's a general point you make, and we'll get into all the specifics, but can you explain what the logical implication of that is first, which is that classical liberalism is absent from sociology, or at least a lot more absent than sure. it could be. So let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, uh, I think that, you know, uh, I've done a, a bunch of studies about policy views and, and politics of academics over the years, and, and um, I think that one of the strongest findings is that there are basically no sort of called non-left sociologists out there. Uh, and, and of course, that is a problem for a subject or a discipline who is interested in understanding society. That means you kind of exclude half of, of the um, intuitions of, of the population from, from a discipline. This, is, this in itself should raise some concerns about the, the discipline itself. Uh, but but there's also certain themes that I think then are becoming forgotten and obsolete, and uh, themes that were present when sociology was a young science, and and uh, that we have forgotten about basically. I think in one of your presentations, I saw that uh, that you did a Google Scholar shirt search for classical liberalism related to sociology, and I think in, in one of the searches, <laughs> the way you framed it, I think only your article came up with your co-author. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, I did a Google search with, you know, quotes around classical liberal sociology. Right. Uh, and I got the first time I did it was, I think, in 2015 or so. Then I got one hit. And then a couple of years later, I got a, it was doubled. So I was very excited. Hundred <laughs> percent increase. <laughs> but it was never just hurts. the way of. Yeah, no, but it was it was it was just a simple kind of um, task to sort of explore that and you know i contrasted it with doing a similar search with marxist sociology in quotes and got over three thousand hits or so uh so you know it is not really balanced to say the least right right and, and we'll get more into that uh in, sure. in a second but, and but i just want to drill a little bit deeper on the first question which is basically that okay if classical liberalism is sort of absent from the the at least these views are absent from the field of sociology, at least underrepresented for sure. Um, there, there obviously was a, was a bit of a history to this. And what I gathered from some of your writing on the subject as well as some of your presentations that I've seen, that if 
classical liberalism is presented as part of the history of sociology. That is, if it's even given a nod, it's often presented as a stepping stone, but but no longer relevant. Now, for those completely unfamiliar for, with that, can you just tease that out a bit? What, what, what do you mean that sure. it's sort of presented as something that is from the past, but no longer relevant, but it's kind of there? Well, it, it, it was just one of the themes from my undergraduates sociology that you know you start going back in time and, and you of course sociology often focus on the industrialization and how societies have changed since modernity and so on and so you start off saying like oh yeah there was adam smith and and sort of the classical liberals you know tradition that was kind of part of this move towards modernity and then came Marxist and the socialist movement. Uh, and then, you know, there were other, the power struggles, the capitalism sucks, and et cetera. And then, you know, you got so, so, social democracy. And end of history, this is kind of the, uh, the new way of thinking about society. And so I, I often hear this kind of um, trajectory where it's described as some, some sort of natural evolution where, you know, now we found you know, the path, so to speak, and in terms of how to think about so the society. And, and, you know, now it's social democracy. That's like the ruling uh, ideas. And uh, if you, if you're, you know, classically liberally inclined, uh, that story doesn't really ring true. Uh, I mean, mm. we still have liberal political parties, even in Sweden, and, uh, you know, so there's a whole tradition that still sort of exists. And uh, it's kind of neglected when you talk about in those terms, I think. And uh, that is a problem itself. We're not educating our students well in, in that sense. And, and, and as we move forward in the conversation, what are the kind, who are the kind of classical liberal thinkers and, and what kind of contributions would you like listeners to kind of keep in the back of their heads that you think, again, like I said, we'll discuss the finer points of the field of sociology in a second, but, but who, are, sure. who, are, who are some of these uh, thinkers and what kind of main ideas do you think are, are not getting as much attention or recognition or even a second look that, that it deserves? Uh-huh. Well, I mean, some of them we wouldn't really call sociologists, I mean, or, or rather, I, uh, let's rephrase that. I would say that some of those guys uh, wouldn't call themselves sociologists because they sort of they predate sociology as a discipline. But but people like Adam Smith, and and in particular in the theory of moral sentiment, has a lot of sociological intuition. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville is like a wonderful sociologist. I mean, he is. You know, every time I read him, I get like so enthusiastic about his thinking and how sophisticated he is in his analysis of society. But then there's William Graham Sumner was an early American sociologist who had classical liberal leanings. Herbert Spencer, of course, called himself a sociologist and, and was a classical liberal. You know, Edward Shields, Shields uh, is another American sociologist. Hans Sethebay is a Swedish sociologist who had a liberal. I mean, all these guys exist there. They, they worked in sociology. They made contributions. But we don't really talk about them um, much at all in, in presenting the, the historic history of sociology or, or the doctrine. And you can, of course, also there include uh, Max Weber, who, who you know, was a liberal politician and one of the founding fathers of, of um, sociology. So, you know, there is a tradition. The tradition is long standing and it's an important tradition, I feel, uh, 
and um, it's kind of neglected and forgotten. And, and in some of your writings and presentations, you also get into your thoughts on why, you know, the, this tradition or, or some of these figures who, who might have a lot to still say and their work might really speak to some of the problems we're trying to solve today or think about in sociology. Why do you think their appeal or influence ha- has waned? Well, there, there are certain specific there are certain specifics. I mean, the sort of uh, evolutionary view of like, oh, first there were liberalism, then there was Marxism, and now it's social democracy is part of that, because that sort of de-emphasized uh, the liberal tradition as some sort of historical anecdote that's no longer relevant. Uh, but then there's also people like Herbert Spencer, who is often put aside as a social Darwinist. And, and I think one could justly say, you know, unrightfully so. Uh, it, it's sort of a smear campaign. And uh, if you really read, there's been a lot of debate about this, of course, and, and there are defenders of Spencer who says, you know, it's wrong. He was not a social Darwinist. It's not like he claimed that people should just, you know, be dying in the streets because that would make society better. He was talking about behaviors. He was talking about mores. He was talking about things that, you know, you as an individual can change uh, and how, you know, a free society can, you know, contribute towards actually bettering social norms and mores and, and hence create a better society. Right. And and back on that social Darwinism point. So you, 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 that is a note I actually had here, which is great. So yeah, like this idea that, you know, the accusations of social Darwinism. So is, is this just sort of spread from one figure or a couple figures for basically people to think, oh, these classical liberals, they're a bunch of individualist social Darwinists. They don't have anything to contribute when it comes to the idea of how we operate as a society. Is that sort of one of the seeds as to why maybe the tradition started to wane in popularity when it came to the development of sociology? I think that it, it was important. It, it was certainly a campaign that, that worked against Sumner being recognized as a, as a thoughtful sociologist because also he was sort of put in the social Darwinist corner. Mm. Uh, so I do think that, you know, the, uh, that had something to do with, with the veining um, popularity in the U.S. Uh, in particular. And one that I really want to ask you about today I was looking forward to it because I saw it on one of your slides. Uh, you simply said, and I obviously, I know in your presentation, you actually spoke to this, so it wasn't on the slides, but the title was basically, and then the 1960s and 1970s happened. <laughs> so why don't you take, take me and our listeners through what, what happened, even if it's a long story. I think there's obviously a lot to unpack here if, if, uh, if I'm intrigued by just the one sentence on the slide. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think that there was... You know, it's, sometimes we talk about the zeitgeist, right? And uh, it just so happens that the uh, 1960s and 70s was a was an era of um, sort of protest movements. Mass democracy had a very strong sense, and and basically anti-capitalist mentalities were spreading across the world, and there was a lot of of issues and and uh, surrounding that uh, and. And it just so happens that it's sort of the same time where sociology really became an, a, a big subject. And um, so a lot of the people who came into sociology at that, at that time were, you know, 1960s hippies and, and kind of left-wing leaning 
professors. And of course, that made an impact on, on the teachings of sociology. It made an impact on the research of sociology. And, and you know, that reinforced this whole process of, of, of actually making sociology a very left-leaning discipline, I think. And so, yeah, the 1960s and 70s did happen. And, and it also happened um, when, you know, when sociology really got off the ground as a, as a discipline. And, and um, I think that shaped, shaped sort of the, the uh, you know, sometimes we, we talk about things being path dependent. So this is one of these things that, mm. you know, one episode kind of changed the path uh, that sociology got put on. So, you know, um, that, that is, that would be my short story on the sixties. No, that makes a lot of sense. So I guess your claim ultimately is that as the, the, the profession in the field itself was developing some of the key people developing it, it, the personnel in that field sort of were naturally sorted as to be more, as you said, more left-leaning people, perhaps people more interested in the sociology discussions around Marx or whatever the case may be. But, but all, but ultimately the field was shaped by people that were of a certain leaning, I guess, is the claim. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, in the 60s in, in sociology, Marx was like the key figure. Right. And uh, a lot of the uh, thinking was around conflict theory and, and those kinds of, of ideas. And, and I do think that it, it, it has kind of had a long lasting influence on, on the, the discipline itself and how it evolved since then. Right. And I, I suppose it's one thing as well for people to sort of sort themselves into a group of their peers that, you know, th- think and reinforce their own approaches a certain way but i suppose that would also have sort of like a gatekeeping effect on the field as well too right people interested perhaps in a career in this area might be careful what they're saying at certain points in time or whatever the case may be and then this happens in many fields by the way many professions of course. but but, yes, but obviously indeed. this would be an effect here too i would think of course and and then the, the students start self-selecting into the field according to political views and then the, the process kind of continues and and becomes self-reinforcing and you know today when we look at sociology there and and in particular in in the US there's actually not a lot of political there's not a lot of heterogeneity in political outlook Right, exactly. And, and actually, that leads me right to, right to the next question. Um, I think we provided a lot of great context so far. So now we'll get into more of, you know, sociology as a field into itself and, and, and what classical liberalism can contribute to that, that it hasn't, might not have been so far. But, you know, I, I want to ask the obvious softball question. Obviously, I don't even believe this myself. But like, you know, someone might say, okay, great, this is all interesting. Let's take everything Lada says, uh, you know, at its word. Why should we even care if a certain field or profession is dominated by a certain way of thinking. Like, what, what's the problem with mm-hmm. that? What do you see as the main issue? Well, of course, as a sociologist myself, I, I think that it it makes the uh, discipline poorer, uh, poorer in ideas, poorer in theorizing, poorer in the sense that you know certain lines of thinking isn't isn't there and challenging. I mean, you know, so in in some sense, you could say that it erodes the science itself. Um, and it creates a kind of, um, you know, self-reinforcing groupthink ideology, where where you know a lot of the uh, a lot of the concepts and theories and ideas become taken for granted and not challenged, and um, and and then sort of just like if even if you then start doubting some of the ideas and hypotheses, 
you're afraid to say so because it becomes taboo to sort of challenge the taken for granted assumptions of the field. And, and you know, that is not how science should work. I mean, you know, science should have like a, I mean, you know, now I'm, I'm sounding kind of pretentious perhaps, but you know, it, it, it's all about ideas. It's all about exploring and, and, and it's all about challenging uh, taken for grantedness. I mean, that's that's what we teach our students, right? Critical thinking is important. Uh, offering a wide wide variety of perspectives is important, and so on. So, you know, it it is not, you know, it deteriorates the quality of the discipline itself in the long run. Right. And of course, someone might flippantly say, well, I mean, obviously, the problem isn't that, you know, uh, no one's allowing certain arguments to be made. Uh, you know, it's, it's really just about you need to present your arguments better. Maybe people need to do harder work. But but you actually back this up in, in some of the things you've written and present with, with some case studies that, you know, the... Um, uh, you know that this this field, based on all the context we've talked about, can actually be pretty gatekeeperish when it comes to even people even starting to question a certain either methodology or, or assumption. It's not to say they've even submitted a paper that came to certain conclusions. Of course, that does happen, and it gets scrutinized. You're saying even even sure. even sometimes right out of the gate, if someone wants to bring up a, a sort of a challenge to a fundamental, it, it's even met with a lot of pushback. I think that's true. I mean, you know, I, of course, I don't know what the situation everywhere and, and in all, you know, disciplinary, but I do, I do think from, from my own experience that it's, it's, um, it's very hard to challenge a status quo. Uh, I mean, you, you become unpopular and, and uh, you, you know, you rather not. <laughs> right. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. I think one thing you seem to be very... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a fair point. Uh, w- one thing you seem to be passionate about is the idea that, you know, f- for example, and of course, you know, this would take a whole episode to investigate fully on its own merits, so we won't go there, but but touching on it as a, at a high level, for example, even something out of the gate like... Um, you know, investigation into uh, uh, gender differences and why outcomes are different in labor markets and so on and so forth. You're saying, and I guess this is like quite relevant to today too, especially with certain conversations happening, but you're saying this is even a subject that's hard to touch or actually legitimately investigate unless you're going to go in with some fundamental assumptions that are accepted. And, and I think that's, that obviously is problematic, but you, you obviously agree with that too. That, that's problematic. You can't even start the discussion. Yes, indeed it is. And, and I do think that that is a very str- that, to me, that is one of the uh, strongest examples uh, that I can think of where I think that the uh, kind of taken for granted assumptions um, hinders development of science. Because uh, we have, you know, fields where, where you know, alternative hypotheses, ideas about different kind of uh, preferences among men and women are not even considered. Uh, the, it, the whole notion that, you know, we might differ and hence, you know, on, on average, we will not be the same. Um, <laughs> that's like never even, that's not even, even considered as a potential. It's like we, if, if, if life were without biases and discrimination, we would be the same. And it's like, why would we think so? I mean, there's no other mammal that where men and women behave exactly the same. I mean, there's, there's you know, some, yeah, there, there's, there's something really, strange i think uh with that whole field of thinking that you know like you can't even entertain the idea that maybe we we don't like the same things 
So, so using this one as a case study a little further than what you're basically saying is that that is one of the fundamental assumptions that sort of makes it hard to to do investigations are being taken seriously further that a lot of the idea is, is exactly as you said that, you know, the focus is very much around certain biases and cultural barriers and so on and so forth. And it, it gets hard if someone wants to get down at the fundamental and basically say, okay, like, you know, barring that, are there innate differences? For example, I mean, yeah. like I said, I'm just using this as one example. Obviously there's many, but, Indeed. but I think, yeah, yeah. is that fair? Is that no, a fair? I, you're spot say? on. Okay. Yeah, no, you're spot on. I think that, you know, that wouldn't be a popular thing to investigate and it wouldn't be easy to publish in, in, in one of the mainstream sort of gender and, and so, social science journals. Um, and I have some empirical stuff to back that that <laughs> statement up, although it's it's kind of not. I mean, you know, I did a little I did a little survey about that, but, you know, it's just a small it's just a small case study, mm-hmm. basically. And I think we're actually about the time where it'd be good to take a quick break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Lotta Stern today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including... Danny Leroy, Elizabeth Aragona, and Janet Bufton. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Lada Stern today. So, Lada, I think the first half was great. We provided a lot of context for the discussion. One thing I wanted to jump deeper into now, uh, since we've established that there might be classical liberal thinkers, concepts, or even just, you know, classical liberal ideas forming the basis of, you know, you know, further questions that could be asked that, you know, and these things are underdeveloped or underrepresented. I want to get into some specifics about what we think could be brought to sociology with more classical liberal foundations. And I have, I have a list here that we can, we can go through. Uh, so just to kick sure. us off, for example, one of the areas you think is underdeveloped is the concept of voluntary versus coercive action in sociology mm-hmm. and even just to, you know making the distinction between these two concepts so can you you tease that out for people and let them know sure. what you're thinking there well you know one of the most sort of classic notions in in a lot of the classical liberal literature including adam smith and de tocqueville and and others uh is the notion of of uh, separating between voluntary and coercive action or coerced action, I guess. And, you know, the ultimate coercer is, of course, the state or government uh, that can, you know, legislate or uh, in other ways kind of force us to do things that we otherwise wouldn't do. And, of course, this is a necessary thing for any society. I mean, we do need law and order for society to work, right? So the rule of law is not, you know, something that I would say, like, oh, get rid of that. But... When we are talking about social interventions of different kinds or social problems of, of various matters, um, you know, we never talk about how voluntary action could help to, um, you know, help solve these issues. Uh, and I think that the failing here is that, you know, voluntary action has a lot of good sides. Uh, it creates social capital. Uh, things that sociologists, you know, 
are good at and and care about and theorize around. Um, you know, um, voluntary action is is important to uh, create social solidarity. Uh, it is how we often learn our mores and norms. And uh, so, you know, starting from, you know, the family and the context of the family, going out to the neighborhood, going out even wider and, and, and sort of thinking about voluntary organizations or what have you, uh, those are also organizations that can solve social problems. But that is not, that's never sort of entertained as, as an alternative to government intervention. And so, you know, asking the state to solve our social issues or thinking that government should interfere and regulate human behavior so that we solve our social problems. And I do think, and now I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but, you know, excuse me. <laughs> no, it's okay. Please continue. <laughs> and I do think that there is something in that trade-off. I mean, there is something when, when we do not consider any alternative to government intervention uh, to solve social problems uh, that we're missing out. And I do think that that is an intuition that classical liberal thinkers, going back to Tocqueville, uh, going back to Adam Smith, understood that, you know, if you governmentalize all social affairs, uh, people are going to end up not being good at taking responsibility. Social norms are going to deteriorate. Now, and and, you know, you're not going to build this kind of mutual, you know, solidarity in, in society. And, you know, there's evidence of that emerging everywhere today. I mean, you can point to Robert Putnam's The Bowling Alone okay. as one of those um, examples of, 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 you know, the problems uh, when it becomes related to issues like <coughs> social trust. Um, and so, you know, there there. There's a whole facet of society that isn't explored. I'm not saying that voluntary associations and voluntary action can solve all social problems or mm -hmm. that, you know, that would be some kind of utopian society or anything. I'm just saying that the only, you know, by not distinguishing between sort of the voluntary and the coerced, we, 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 lose, we lose out on on thinking about trade-offs and, and like, where would it be possible for a voluntary to, to benefit society better? Um, I mean, after all, we all know that, you know, market processes, i.e. voluntary action, if I may say so, you know, things that are going on um, outside of government is better at innovation. It is better at, at coming up with new ideas. It is better at satisfying customers uh, and I'm, I'm, some, I'm, you know, sometimes I'm thinking that, you know, more of that kind of thinking in also social problems would be good in, in coming up with, with new ideas about how social issues should be. Right. Or, 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 you know, just for example, I mean, you know, we can talk about other aspects too, but since I know that sociologists often care about social problems, this is, you know, one of the reasons I think that, you know, not considering all the facets of the world is, is a problem or, you know, we could do better.
Right. And, and and this is obviously ties to the idea of like, you know, a, a market in the broadest sense, like sort of when we talk about the marketplace for ideas, right? We're not always talking literally about Indeed. going to the corner store and getting milk or something. You're saying that exactly. there's, there's, a, there's a broad market in the truest, broadest sense for solving social Indeed. problems that isn't coercive action or government. Yeah, I'm just thinking that the uh, the dichotomy voluntary and coercive has, you know, is is like one is within the government sector and the other one is like everything else. Right. Yeah, because <laughs> so markets in the broadest possible sense. Yeah, because you've written that you know classical liberals or, or people with those sort of fundamentals in sociology could bring sort of a needed balance because a lot of what you say quote left leaning sociologists tend to do is always associate community. Uh, action or solidarity or collective action with doing so through government and there's no sort of that no in between yeah that's that's at least my intu- i mean that's my intuition and that would be my you know that's that's often where i think that that sociologists are lacking in imagination uh, so you know we're sometimes talking about the sociological imagination and that imagination would benefit from considering other options uh, too. Not instead necessarily, but too. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, think, you know, we could benefit from thinking more like economists in that sense and think about the trade-offs and, and think about, you know, uh, alternative ways of doing things and, and what those would entail. Right. You know, not just talking about how markets fail the poor and just sometimes think about how governments fail the poor, or, you know, just more of a balance of, of the two. Right. And, and on that note about that balance and what, what kind of ideas classical liberals can come to the table, one thing one I found interesting, too, that I noted here was the idea that classical liberals might be able to contribute some ideas um, to the idea of how there's a relationship between uh, commerce and markets and, and the market in the broadest sense, but but also with communities. That is to say that. Uh, you know, sociologists often tend to think of these things perhaps as, as as separate or segregated. You have a commercial life over here and a community life over here, but you're you're saying there's a lot to be said for the interplay between the two and, and what markets bring to communities, and also vice versa as well. I thought that was a very interesting Indeed. point. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. No, I think that that's correct, and and the you know. Humans are good at dichotomizing things, right? So we have markets, we have government, we have <laughs> voluntary, we have coercion. But of course, in real life, these things are are not separate at all. Uh, you know, your local grocery store can contribute to, by supporting a basketball team, or you know, there's all kinds of interplay here between these different spheres of of, of um, civil society, if you want, and and. Um, and I think that the term civil society is interesting in that sense because I, in my in my view, it includes the market. Uh, I would consider the market as part of of the civil society and mm-hmm. and how that, you know, as, at least in the classical liberal uh, traditional sort of um, readings and understandings, that was, you know, everything that you know you partook in as part of of outside your family doings. So it included being a baker, uh, but also being a father and, and being a churchgoer or what have you. That was all part of, of being part of so, civil society. And so, you know, we have sort of constructed these as, as opposing spheres of life. And, and uh, that's not really necessarily a good thing. Right. Always. 
And, and another one that I found very interesting as an example, and I think this kind of ties two things together. Uh, one, what classical liberal fundamentals and thinking might bring to sociology, but but two, what sociology can bring to the table in general through that. So I, I, I like this one a lot. Just Just getting more into the discussion about how the role of privilege, prestige, status, and power plays into rent-seeking. Because you've made the point that economists, on the one hand, might be very good at talking about rent-seeking full stop and how that acts and so on and so forth. You know, politics without romance and so on and so forth. But 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 you're saying there's another side that we can explore through sociology and, as I said, through classical liberal contributions to sociology, which is actually really get into how social status, privilege, and so on plays into rent-seeking. I found that very interesting, if, if you'd like to elaborate on that point. Yeah, so political scientists and economists often just kind of think about these as, as rent-seeking, and um, I think that sociologists would find it very interesting, or could add to that, uh, just the human instincts towards seeking status and, and uh, privilege, and how that is, is, is actually a very important part of, of our identity and, and what motivates us in the social world. I mean, we care about what other people think about us. And, you know, seeking the support of government and having sort of the, uh, the approval stamp, uh, we could, you know, add some of the kind of softer issues that surrounds uh, mechanism towards rent seeking and why why that is so prevalent um, in government you know like in in governmentalized societies um, why the government is so important to us mm-hmm. was that a good yeah no I think that works yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and one of the last points here I think tying into sure. how classical liberalism can contribute to the field. I like you, you kind of termed it, if I recall correctly, as, as sort of like the sociology of, of, of statism. So you, you think that there's a lot to be said for, you know, hey, if classical liberals are interested in things like rent seeking and government failure and, and so on and so forth, there is sort of a sociology around that. It's not just always a pure economic incentive, if you will. So there's there's a lot of things. Like I said, I've already mentioned groupthink. You mentioned indoctrination, yeah. preference, preference yeah. falsification, conformity, obedience. There's so many sociological concepts that we can actually apply to the idea of statism, which classical liberals are so interested in, but often just come from an economic or, or a, you know, poli-sci approach. Indeed. I, and I do think that, yeah, uh, statism is, of course, sort of a, a pejorative i think is the english word i mean you know it's sort of the the love of the state i guess or or like the um ever expansion of of, you know that or yeah i don't know how to really um define it but i i do think that there is a lot to be said for um bringing i mean you know think about what sociologists are good at we're good at understanding the social aspects of being a human being. So we understand culture, we understand uh, how social norms come about, we understand why it's important uh, to be part of a group and why it's in, why we seek social belonging and all those kind of things uh, that, so that economics isn't really good at understanding because they have a sort of a rudiment, often a rudimentary view of human beings as being merely rent-seeking or, or interest in material benefits or, or interest in mostly in themselves. So if you think about what sociology could bring to our understanding of stuff like statism is this whole ammunition of cultural cultures, norms, 
approval seeking, um, collective identity, you know, like why do we think so much, why do we want to belong to something that's so, you know, big and grandiose and why do we feel like that's a good thing to be part of? And, and you know, we're primitive animals in, in, in some kind of evolutionary sense. And if you start thinking about it, you know, this modern world uh, with its emphasis on, on individual choice and individual action is very unnatural to us. And, and I think that the, the um, yearning for, for statism or the yearning of the collective is kind of a, something that, you know, a classical liberal sociology could bring to understand why we see it everywhere and uh, why, you know, why, you know, instead of, of, of just thinking of it in terms of rent seeking, uh, I think that, you know, there's a, there's a whole story that we can tell about the work, the way modern societies work that, that it remains to be told and explored and, mm-hmm. and uh, investigated and, and sort of, um, imagined i guess right and, and and my next question actually i think ties nicely into what you're saying there i think i think you've already answered part of it frankly which which is awesome but but i would be nice to go <laughs> a little further which is you know so i think i think it's 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 fortunate and unfortunate you know there's positive and negatives on each side that a lot of people sure. who might come from a, a a classical liberal perspective or or are very interested in the, tradi- the the liberal tradition often end up finding themselves uh especially in north america in the field of economics there's there's many hubs for that sort of thing um you know stretching it would be perhaps political theory but but you know that's the kind of milieu these people find themselves in what, what, what would you say to somebody about sociology in general if they're coming from the idea that, you know, I want to do what I want to do in my field, but I really want to tie this also into uh, my, my passion for the liberal tradition. I find myself a liberal person. Is it just as you were yeah. saying that there are indeed ways to explore and marry the two? Or, or what would you say to somebody who might be on the fence do, about I that? Do, sure. No, I do think that there is there is definitely a tradition worth reviving, and um, I'm actually working on a on a book project together with a with an American sociologist, Fabio Rojas of Indiana University, mm. uh, and it's going to be called something <laughs> along the lines of, of um, um, freedom, sort of something classical liberal sociology. <laughs> I forget the title now. Um, and of course, it's not. It remains to be written. So this is a book project that, right. that we're in, instigating. But the idea is actually to to bring out some of these themes in terms of, of voluntary, in terms of freedom, in terms of uh, individualism, rightly understood sort of individualism. Then, in, in sort of the Tocquevillian uh, sense, not the ego individual, but but you know the more true individual. Um, and to try to explore important topics in sociology and bring in uh, classical liberal ideas and see what happens. And so we're we're now recruiting sociologists from around the world to contribute chapters on uh, ideas like class and uh, race and um, economic sociology. I mean, all kinds of issues that we think is prevalent in within the mainstream. Uh, but perhaps underdeveloped in terms of of classical liberal idea infusion, and so you know we'll see what happens. Uh, but it's a very exciting project to me, and I think that it's going to be fantastic if it 
materializes. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and <laughs> it's been long in the making. Yeah. And I was going to say, we actually have had Fabio on before on a different topic. Oh, so, really? So, okay. so now yeah. we've had you on. So when that book comes out, we should have both <laughs> you on. I think that'd be very cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually talking to Fabio later tonight about the prospects. So that's going to be fun. Oh, great. Yeah, tell him we said hi. <laughs> it will. Yes, awesome. for sure. Um, so ultimately, you think, you know, there is no fundamental tension between someone coming from a classical liberal perspective or someone with those fundamentals in sociology. As a matter of fact, you think they work very good in parallel. I do. Uh, I mean, you I mean, you could say that today it would be a tension because so, so much of the field is is not leaning that way. But if you really if you really start from, you know, the fundamentals of, of what sociology is about. Uh, there's really nothing inherently anti-classical liberal in, this, in the discipline. I mean, you know, we, we care about stuff that, you know, economists not always care about. And uh, I think that there's, there's a lot, whole tradition that we can re-explore that would be extremely exciting to delve into I think it's that's a good time to move us to our, our formal wrap up. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do so right now. So, Lada, in each episode, I want to make sure that the uh, the guest ultimately has the last word to to put a finer point on the conversation and and bring everything full circle. So l- let me ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on whether classical liberalism is important for sociology? In other words, if you just wanted everyone to take away one or two or just a handful of things, if anything, from everything we've talked about what would those takeaways be? I think, um, <clears throat> I think the takeaway would be that sociology is a fantastic discipline dealing with really, really interesting things about what it, what it means to be an individual in, in a modern society or for that matter, in a pre-modern society. Uh, and by lifting in ideas of, of uh, freedom, of individualism, uh, rightly understood, and the distinction perhaps between voluntary and coercive. I think there is so much to be done and understood and explored, and uh, I welcome anyone interested to the field. Very nice. I think we'll leave it there. <laughs> Lotta Stern, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you so much for having me. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Bye-bye.